Welcome to Now Appalachian, hosted by author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. This show profiles the authors and publishers that have connections to the Appalachian region and how those connections influence and impact their works. And now, Appalachian. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. It's great to have you with us. I'm your host, Elliot Parker, as we continue to profile the outstanding authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia, and as we focus on how the Appalachian region impacts and influences their work. And these authors have connections to Appalachia, either through residency, through uh, college education, through living experiences, or a host of other connections, and we profile those and show how those connections show up in their literary works right here on Now Appalachia. And we have an outstanding author with us today with her new book called Wanting Radiance, and our guest is Karen McElmurray, and she joins us today uh, from... Uh, a variety of different places and a variety of different experiences. She currently teaches right now at Gettysburg College, and she also teaches in West Virginia Wesleyan's Low Residency MFA program. She has won an AWP award for creative nonfiction for her book, Surrendered Child, A Birth Mother's Journey, and the Horizon Award for creative nonfiction for her essay, Blue Glass. She's also had other essays recognized as notable essays in the collection's Best American Essays, and while her essays, Speaking Freely and Addicts, were also nominated for Pushcart Awards, and she's carried that wonderful career and that wonderful talent for writing into this outstanding new novel called Wanting Radiance. And Karen, welcome to Now Appalachia. We are so delighted to have you here. Elliot, thank you so much. I'm glad to finally meet you and uh, get a chance to hear more about now Appalachia and get a chance to talk with you. Well, we are so glad to have you. And this is a wonderful book that really, I was so sad when it ended because I wanted to spend so much more time with these characters that you created. And I, I've just got so many wonderful questions and I want to learn so much more about these characters. But when we get, <laughs> Thank when we get you. oh, absolutely. When we get into your work, I, I guess if we had to sum up your, your book into a word or two, I think fortune telling is one of the themes that kind of tie your work together. Um, and and it, it was really a way of life for uh, two characters that we meet early on in your, in your book. One is Miracell Loving, and then her mother, Ruby, who have an interesting connection and a relationship. But one of the things we find out uh, early on is that when Miracell is 15 years old, she comes home to find Ruby murdered. And as a result, she kind of takes on this vagabond life and sort of kind of goes out on her own and and tries to, to make connections and forge ahead by herself. Can you talk to us a little bit about the relationship that Miracell and Ruby have and just the kind of impact overall that Ruby's death has on Miracell? Oh, I think that their relationship is quite, quite complicated. I think um, in one way, they're, they're friends, they're best friends for many years, which in and of itself is a complicated thing for a parent and child uh, to have, to experience. They also have a sort of a caretaking thing going on. Ruby many times is subject to depression, subject to chasing after a bad man that she just can't have. And then she will come home and who she has to talk to and spill the story of love gone wrong to is her daughter. And um, so Miracell ends up, you know, painting uh, Ruby's nails for her or making sure she has tea and sometimes making sure she has bottles of wine. 
So, you know, there's that complicated mother-daughter-friend caretaker thing going on. But then that begins to change, you know, as Mirasol gets older. By the time she's a teen, I think that she has pretty clearly seen through who and what her mother is. Her mother tells fortunes, and, and uh, Mirasol has come to question that. What does it mean to tell a fortune when you can't even, uh, she thinks, all of your own fate, your own fortune. So she you know, has a certain kind of bitterness going on. And at the same time, uh, Mircelle longs to know why is it just the two of us? Where is my father? Who is my father? And that, and you know, I don't know my father. There's all these other men. There's this one man you want in particular that you seem to not have. Where's my father? And, Mira, and uh, Ruby won't tell her the truth. Ruby doesn't hold, withholds that information. So up to the point of Ruby's death, this murder that you talk about, there's been all this sort of tangle of stuff, this ball of, of yarn that, that Mira so longs to unravel and she doesn't quite know how. And I guess in, you know, the bottom line, one of the things Miracell learns most from her mother, from Ruby, is not to trust love. Love is something you just can't hang on to and you can't count on it. Well, there's that. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, as Mirasol gets to be, grows up and gets to be in her 30s, she also, as she gets older and kind of has these new experiences, she starts to hear Ruby's voice kind of in her subconscious speaking to her. And one of the things I liked about those scenes in your novel is that sometimes what Ruby would say is very direct and very declarative and very specific, you know, uh, you know, get on with it, do this, don't do that. Uh, but other times she kind of gives some, some unexpected uh, advice that's really poignant and kind of carries the story forward. And I noted one scene uh, in the novel where uh, Miracell is, is working at Willie's Wonderama, which I think is just a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful place. <laughs> it reminds me of so many places that I can remember as a kid and, and, and that. Um, oh, I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, yes. It just, uh, yeah. And I think about Willy Wonka and, and Wally World from National Lampoon's Vacation and so many other things. So I love that. I love that place and that name. But when she's working there, she's digging through this trove of files. She finds some photographs and she hears um, Ruby kind of give her this, this haunting instru instruction. And I wrote this down. You write, if you want to know who you are, you might just find a clue here you can use. So, so that voice is sometimes direct, but it's also sometimes uh, sort of guiding her, kind of pushing her uh, in a different direction. How does Miracell react? What do we see and what do we notice from her uh, as she's kind of getting these, these conflicting little snippets of advice from Ruby's voice? Well, the first time she hears from Ruby is in a bar. You know, she's in Knoxville and she's telling fortunes at a, at a, in a bar, which is something she does. It's a good place to draw people in. And lo and behold, right in the middle of, you know, pulling this woman in to having her fortune told also about love gone wrong, suddenly she hears this voice of her, of, she hears first she hears a voice and she thinks, nah, that couldn't be her. Surely that's not her. And then she hears the voice again. And lo and behold, it is indeed the voice of her mother. And she's like, oh my God. <laughs> Now what? You know, I haven't had anything to do with my mother in all these years since I was 15 years old, and here is her voice. So I think initially Mirasol just didn't claim it and want to have anything to do with it. She wants to stay far away from it as she can. 
But then she realizes Ruby's not going. Her, that voice is persistent. The voice, you know, and, and in Ruby's part of being the voice, I think she probably, if ghosts can know such things, not in this novel, I think they can, Ruby is kind of messing with her. Sometimes she's giving her sort of a riddle to think upon, and sometimes she's giving her direct information. So, you know, Ruby's like that, and Miracell is aware of what her mother's like, and so she's, she's, once she's accepted that this voice is real and true, she's wary, and she has to sift through what she's being told. And so, you know, Ruby's constantly either shaking her up or pushing her just back a little bit and messing with her. So it's all of that you got to work through. <laughs> Absolutely. And you, you mentioned kind of her sifting through the voice of her mother and the instructions that she's given. There's a passage I wanted to read uh, briefly from chapter 16 called Rooms to Let. And I think this gives us an idea and gives our audience an idea of kind of how Miracell kind of weighs and balances the instructions that Ruby tells her. And you write on page 137, just so beautifully, you write, Behind me in this strange room, White sheets on a bed and an open window and a little air coming in through a screen. Wait, Ruby said to me, just wait and see. Along a few of the highways I'd driven, I sketched out any number of scenes in my head and none of them involved much patience. In some scenarios, I rushed up onto porches, pounded on doors, punched a fist or two in a wall into, in a dining room where some man who might or might not look a bit like me was playing board games with a family I'd never met. Or... <laughs> Uh, more often, I'd see myself giving up altogether, wasting away in a hospital ward when a man in a father-looking getup poked his head in at the last minute, his arms full of roses, just as I was despairing of ever knowing my own name. And then she, uh, Mirasol goes on to talk about her fathers, and she says, fathers were as much ghosts to me as Ruby's holler haints. They were magazine advertisements, clean-cut men with polo shirts, and shiny ladders to climb to fix the roofs of houses where I had never lived. And I just think that when I was trying to find a passage that really kind of shows all of those characters in Miracell's life and the impressions and the weight that they have on her, I thought that passage really kind of encapsulated all of that. And so she, she's dealing with a lot. She, she's trying to, you know, forge ahead and she's trying to, as you mentioned, trying to develop relationships with men and she never lets them get too close. Or she never lets herself get too close, but she's weighing all of these other things on her mind as well. And she, um, it is really just a, a, a strong character in that regard, but also very complex in her own right. She's almost got her own complexities, but also some of those traits from her mother that you were talking about earlier. Well, I'm just really pleased that you picked that passage. That was one that I worked over and over trying to get to what I mean. I mean, this is basically, this book is a ghost story. I mean, we have literal ghosts, the literal ghost of this mother, speaking in, in Ruby's ear at night in a bar, but there's a lot more ghosts in this book than that, a lot more kinds of ways that people haunt us. Miracil is haunted by the father she never knew, and more than that, she's haunted by the idea of what fathers are supposed to be, and, and she's haunted by thinking, well, I don't care one way or the other about what they're supposed to be. <laughs> he is or he isn't. But still, she still she persists in, in that thing turning over and over inside her that pushes her to know who he is and who she is. And boy, probably the biggest thing is all, of all is that love thing. She's haunted by love. On the one hand, she's grown bitter. She's grown, um, 
you know, she's running different in a way. A lot of whispers that inside her and, and won't leave her alone. At the same way, family won't leave her alone. And that's what family does, as we all know. <laughs> Absolutely. Very well said. We Absolutely. think we've got it all resolved. We think we've got everything fine. And then sure enough, all the ghosts are rattling their bones inside us. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely true. Absolutely true. Karen Salyer McElmurray is our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We're talking to her about her outstanding new novel, Wanting Radiance. And Karen, we'll come back to the novel uh, in just a couple minutes. But I wanted to ask you more about your career as a writer. You're a very uh -huh. accomplished and award-winning short story writer. And I wanted to ask you about short story writing and how you got interested in that and how does writing short stories translate over into the skills needed to put a novel together? Well, my history with writing is, as in many things in my life, kind of long and circuitous and complicated. I first went to the University of Virginia many years ago, and I was going to enter the program there in poetry. And <clears throat> um, I set out for a while. When I got there, I thought, let me just see if this is what I really want. And I was doing jobs in landscaping and gardening and stuff. But I submitted these poems, and I went and talked to people about them. Uh, my mentors there, George Garrett and John Casey, and they kept saying, you know, these poems are interesting, but they're really very narrative. Have you ever thought about writing stories? So that became the thing that I did. I wrote short stories, and I wrote um, a collection for my thesis there at University of Virginia of, of stories about growing up in eastern Kentucky. And that was called The Black Shape Wonder. <laughs> so that was, that was stories. But then, you know, lo and behold, I don't know, the more I worked, um, I, I decided stories themselves weren't exactly the vehicle. I went to this conference, and uh, as at many conferences, you have somebody who will talk with you that day, you know, and they'll read your manuscript and you have a conference with them. And I had uh, the writer Mary Lee Settle. I don't know if you know her work. Yes. You read the story that I've written, and um, it was actually called um, The Motel of the Stars. And she sits me down and she's, um, first she was telling me some story about being in a cage with bears doing research for this novel she was working on. Then she comes back to my story and she says, honey, I, I, I hate to tell you this, but you're, you're a novelist. And I thought, oh my God, I'm a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I had gone from writing narrative points to short stories to this opening that was novels. And um, it's taken me years, you know, to, to figure out which genre home is most my own. And at this point, it's, um, it's these, I've written a, uh, three novels now, and I also write creative nonfiction. Sometimes I think that uh, genre is a word that's very um, fluid for me, Very uh, that there's a world between all those genres, and my writing maybe inhabits that. Very good. Excellent. So who are some writers that influence you? Who are writers that you look to for inspiration or that you find yourself going back to to kind of see how they do things in terms of structure or language or syntax or plot? Who are some ones that really influence and inspire you? Oh, mercy. I think some, you know, it's one of those cases where if you asked me tomorrow, I'd mention different writers that are my favorite. But I do have some that I have always deeply loved. And at the top of the list would probably be James Agee, A Death in the 
think, oh, I love that book so much. I could read it a million times. I also really love uh, Jean Reese. If you know her, White Star Gasso Sea. Yes, a wonderful story. Of, um, Virginia Woolf <laughs> to the Lighthouse. So, you know, I'm really drawn to writing that is very lyric, that is itself sort of bet between inhabiting the between world of poetry and prose. And I, I, I love that kind of writing. And I like to spend some days when I'm writing, reading passages aloud. And like you say, trying to figure out how the sentences flow, how they break off, and then the next sentence starts. And I think the thing writers should do every day of their life is read like a writer. Absolutely. Yes, that, yeah. that's excellent advice. And, and read and read widely, uh, not just in your genre that you like, but read outside of the genre that's your favorite, too. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Your book got published by the University of Kentucky Press. How did you get connected with them, and what was that process like in terms of from the time you submitted the manuscript to them towards publication? What was the process like in working with them on your book? Well, I had heard via some people, I, I go have been more than once at the Hyman Settlement School uh, Appalachian Writers Workshop, and I had heard from some people there that there was a new press, uh, a new line at University Press of Kentucky working with fiction, with, with books, with fiction for one thing. And so I began to explore them, and um, they read the book, and they re really, really liked it. Um, they too asked me some of my favorite writers, and I remember the time I said, um, Catherine Dunn, um, Geek Love, do you know that? <laughs> yes. And they, they lit up with that, and so we had a lot of things to say to one another about this book, and I was just so, so fortunate. I had worked on this book I, for almost seven years, like seven years being a magical number in a way, and I had really worked to polish it, but then they took it to the next level. I got the, the, had the great good fortune of working with a woman uh, who, who was, became my, a true editor in the true meaning of the word. And um, uh, we went through two drafts of it on the line by line basis, clarifying what I meant when. One of the, um, Things I love is being a poetic prose writer, a lover of lyric writing, but sometimes I can get carried away. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like my dad, who's a storyteller, and I can't stop. You know? Yes, that's right. Just so great at helping me look at the words, looking at the patterns of the words, cleaning up those sentences, finding sort of the clean bones of some of the passages. And I'm just so glad about that. So that was the process. And, you know, just a wonderful thing. That's great. Fantastic. Karen Sawyer-McElmurray is our guest here today on Now Appalachia. We're talking to her about her career as a writer and a novelist and a short story writer, and also talking to her about her outstanding new novel, Wanting Radiance. And so, Karen, let's go back to the book for just a little bit. And I wanted to ask you about um, the storytelling aspect in terms of who's narrating the story in different places. Uh -huh. We see that most of the novel is kind of told through Miracell's voice, but you also intersperse some other chapters that are written in third person. Um, and sometimes we get several different characters, experiences and thoughts and ideas through that. Uh, primarily Rubia, though, is the one who fills those, those other chapters. Um, can you tell us a little bit about 
how you put that together. Is it a situation where you sort of wrote all of Miracell's scenes first and then Ruby's later, or did you, as you were putting the manuscript together, the draft together, alternate as you went back and forth? How did all of that come together in terms of putting those two different kinds of voices in your novel? Well, as I mentioned, it's been, uh, it was a long process working on this book, like seven years. And I'd say the first couple of years, I was mainly working uh, in the point of view of Miracell, who used to be named Wadeen. Her name was Wadeen Loving, and she became Miracell. But, and so I had a draft, a good part of a draft. But the more I worked, the more I realized that her mother, that Ruby needed to speak. Originally, um, all of the parts in Ruby's voice were sort of uh, the interruption of a notebook, a diary that Ruby kept. And the more I worked on that, the more Ruby developed her very own authentic voice. And, became, and so those two uh, parallel narratives developed. And then once again, uh, this was later on, probably in this fifth or sixth year, I became aware that the book needed also to tell the story from another angle, and that became um, Dally Wallen and Russell Wallen. Russell, who is, in fact, well, those people needed to speak. And, you know, it's sort of like my love of Cubist paintings in a way. <laughs> you know, there's a thing, and then there's the thing on this side, and this side, and this side. I, I really am a, an admirer of looking at something from all angles. And I love books, you know, other books I love. I love Louise Erdrich. I love stories that are told in multiple points of view. And by all means, my, my God, probably be William Faulkner, The Sound and the Fury. I love voices, uh, books that are in multiple voices, trying to in some way understand what the real truth is. Yeah, and when I think about that, and I think about books I've read and those multiple voices, Faulkner always comes to mind, Sound and the Fury is wonderful. I also think about As I Lay Dying, where we get scenes of that family and their trek through all of the different characters' <laughs> perspectives, even the little baby. We get kind of chapters from, from, from the yes. little child's perspective, which is just fantastic. As I Lay Dying, my favorite thing of all is Vardam and my mother is a fish. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Yes, very. Yes, that's exactly right. I need to go back and read that book. It's been several years since I've read it, but uh, it's it's a wonderful example of how you can shift uh, perspectives in a story from different uh, narrators and put different people in and give their own kind of spin and perspective on what's going on. So, Karen, I know you're going to read a page of the novel for us so that our audience can get uh, a sense of a more sense of these characters and who they are and what they're up to and kind of how uh, Miracell is reflecting and managing and dealing with all of these things that are going on in her life, both past and present. So tell us a little bit about the, the passage or the page that you're going to read from and kind of set that up for us. And then we'll uh, let you take it from here and then we'll come back to you on the other side. Okay. I want you know, we've been talking a lot today about Ruby Loving, who's Miracell's mother. And uh, of late in doing some readings from this book, I've been reading some of her voice. And so that's what I wanted to do today. Each chapter in the book has a separate title. The title of this particular chapter, and it's the first time we hear um, from or about Ruby. And um, this, the time is 1947, and it's the time of her birth. You know, the book is 
very much a work of magic realism, as well as a number of other things. And so her memory goes all the way back to the time of her birth. And that's what I wanted to read just a page of. Her first memory was reaching out of darkness toward the faces of the women ready to receive her. She held back, safe in the damp, warm inside, her eyes open and already not sure of the world she was about to enter. Wait, her heart told her. Then they took hold of her hands and pulled her out into the light, into a room that smelled of tobacco and herbs, a room where her mother cried. A beautiful child, the women said, but Esther saw right away that her daughter had more than her share of mortal flaws. Just look at your hands, Esther said when Ruby was six or seven, and sure enough, they were rough from mud in the yard, her palms threaded with fine cuts from the broom straw and cat briar she plucked behind the house. Maybe Esther had wanted a son instead, Ruby grew to believe, and so she took the broom straw and wove it into things that seemed more solid than herself. She filled tiny baskets with hatched out robin's eggs, stones as smooth as she could find. Or maybe Esther wanted no child at all. Ruby worked to disappear, hiding inside quilts at the end of the bed, vanishing inside closets and coats in the summer heat. Her hands were so far from her own body, she saw them as two lost things she no longer wanted. If there was such a thing as a mother's love, Ruby saw it fall through Esther's fingers like rusty water. And if the world held beauty, Esther kept it too close. She pulled the clothes off all, the, all clean off the line, breathed her scent when she thought no one saw. She kept bottles and all the colors she could find, blue and red and brown, hung by twine across the kitchen window to catch all the light coming in. Late evening, she sat at the mirror by the dresser, her own slender hands parting strands of her hair to make a long braid. Tell me about love, Mama, Ruby said. She's wound stray bits of thread on a spool. There's no such a thing, Esther said. There's only God. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And that, that gives us, that's such a wonderful page. And I remember that page as you got about three or four lines into that. And that just gives us such a wonderful uh, insight into Ruby and her as a person and a character, but also, as you mentioned, that wonderful lyrical style that you have. And we really see that come through uh, in Ruby's sections of the novel when she's kind of taking over the storytelling, we see that. So that was a wonderful, wonderful passage and a page, and I'm so glad you picked that one to read. So Thank Karen you so and much. I, Oh, absolutely. So Karen, in our final moments with you today, if someone wants to get in contact with you to talk to you about writing, to talk to you about um, what you're up to currently and what you've been up to in the past, uh, how can they get in contact with you, first of all? And then where can they get copies of Wanting Radiance? Well, I am um, very fond of Facebook, probably fonder of Facebook than I uh, ought to be in this world. <laughs> so that's one way. But I also have a website, um, Karen Salyer McElmurray.com. And you can leave me messages there. And I would, I am very happy to contact people and to have conversations. Um, this book can be gotten on Amazon. It can also be gotten via University Press of Kentucky directly. Um, so those are two good ways. Very good. 
We have been delighted to spend today on Now Appalachia talking with Karen Salyer Malcolm Murray about her career as a writer, but most importantly, her outstanding new novel, Wanting Radiance, uh, a story of love, a story of family, but a story about uh, two characters who have this interesting bond and connection in Ruby and Miracell, and you find out how and why they're connected and how Ruby's circumstances in her life way on Miracell today and how that affects Miracell going forward. And Karen, it was just a, a wonderful story uh, about some wonderful characters and it's written so beautifully. Congratulations on it. And uh, we wish you all the best with it. And as well as we wish you all the best with all your future writing projects that you have coming up. So thanks so much for coming on now, Appalachia. Thank you, Elliot. We also want to take a moment to say thanks to the executive producer of Now Appalachia, who makes everything possible behind the scenes for us each and every episode here on the program, and that is Pam Stack. She is not only the executive producer of Now Appalachia, but she's the executive producer and director of all of the podcast programs that you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And we appreciate all the work that Pam does behind the scenes uh, for not only Now Appalachia, but for the other great podcasts uh, from my other great co-hosts and friends that you hear on the network. So thank you, Pam, for all the work that you do. We could not do it without you. We also want to remind you as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia, this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. That's going to do it for us this time, and we'll talk to you next time on Now Appalachia. Until then, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next. Stay tuned for more outstanding podcasts from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.